Hey folks, Brian here. I want to thank each and every one of you who has liked, reviewed, rated, and subscribed to Confessions of an Arcade Addict and telling your friends and everything like that. Please keep it going. I just recently went up over 500 likes on Facebook and I'm really, really grateful to each and every one of you. Now on with the show. This is episode number 29 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, let's see, when last we left, in episode 28, which was recorded last month, not much has changed. Um, I have been working a lot of hours, so I haven't had as much opportunity to record. Um, full disclosure, I try to record once every three weeks or so, but with work doing what it's been doing for last month... I haven't had the energy to sit down and record. Uh, let's see, as far as gaming goes, uh, let's see, I've been playing Elite Dangerous. I've been playing uh, Nova Drift. Um, I actually found out about um, Amazon Games, which is Amazon's li attempt at doing what Steam does. And so far they have, a, I think they have an agreement with SNK because a lot of their games were up for download, and since I'm a Prime member, uh, I get those games for free. Um, I downloaded uh, Akari Warriors. No, not Akari Warriors. It was SNK's 40th anniversary uh, collection, and Akari Warriors was in it. So immediately I went right to that and started playing. Um, Akari Warriors is going to be in uh, Are You Experienced and also um, Time for Some Strategy, so stay tuned. That's coming. Uh, but yeah, I played that, and I actually beat the game. <laughs> I was very proud of myself. Now, full disclosure, um, the reason why I beat the game was because uh, these games have a rewind feature now. You just press a button on your controller, and if you lose a life somewhere, you can actually rewind the action to before you lost your life, and then you can actually do something different and not get killed. <laughs> that helped me out in at least four or five different uh, areas. So yeah, I played Battletech and I actually beat it. As a matter of fact, it actually triggered a memory um, where I think when the game was at... Um, Bolarama back in the day in 1986-87, I think I actually beat it. Um, 
It's either that or I watched somebody else beat it. It's one of the two, but it's such a vague memory that was triggered when I reached the end of Akari Warriors that, you know, I might have beaten it or I watched someone else do it. It's one of the two. I forget. But yeah, I ran up a score of like, what, a 1,335,000 points or something like that. And I had a lot of fun doing it. I forgot just how much fun that game was to play. And it's just a wonderful game. And yeah, it's going to get its full treatment in uh, Are You Experienced in Time for Some Strategy. So stay tuned for that. Um, I've been playing Battletech. I actually got back into Steambird's Alliance. Uh, so yeah, I've been playing a lot more games. Um, I'm still considering going to the arcade in Brighton. I was thinking about doing it tomorrow after work, but I have too much to do at home, so I'm going to have to forego it for at least a week, if not two. Um, also, I finally got my taxes back, so I actually got myself a new computer, and I'm recording on it right now. And so far, so good. It's doing very well for itself. It's about, oh, what, ten times faster than my old system that I was recording this podcast on and also playing games. And I had to watch the games I played and play them on minimum settings, otherwise the <laughs> the uh, graphics card was going to implode. So, yeah, I had to be careful about that. Um, so far, so good. It's doing very well, and I'm continuing to, to use it, and I'm very happy with the system I built. Um... Also, I think maybe later on in the year, probably towards the end of the year, I might start streaming. Um, my thought process is I'm going to do streaming of the games I like to play, uh, maybe some even um, streaming some uh, emulation games, um, some... Uh, D&D stuff, maybe. Um, my podcast cohorts for my other podcast have been on me about uh, restarting the game we played and recorded on uh, Roll20. So I might do that. So I would love to start streaming and possibly even create it to where I can go live on location somewhere if, of course, I can get a good uh, cellular phone plan that has the coverage and, you know, the data rates won't kill me. Um, either way, it's just something that I'm really considering. Um, if you guys want to see that, just let me know. It'll actually give me the uh, motivation to actually go and do these things. God only knows I have a thousand ideas, and the problem is executing on those ideas. But anyway, enough of that. Um, I check my emails and messages on uh, Facebook and nothing's there. So once again, if you have any questions, uh, you want me to review a particular game, um, anything of those natures, just get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, I have a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, social media is, of course, up and running as always. Um, on Facebook, you can just type in the search bar, Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. Also, there is a 
Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast discussion group on Facebook. So you can go there, join in, and ask questions of me or uh, any particular games that you are really interested in or what have you, and we can get some discussion going. That would be nice. Um, also, I am on Twitter. That is at ArcadeAddict underscore B. On Instagram, I am at ArcadeAddictBrian. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So once again, there are multiple ways of getting hold of the show. And if you want to contribute, by all means do so. So then, let's get on with everything going on here. I've got a lot to cover, and it's already late, so let's just get right into it. Let's go into Top Tens. Top Tens. Arcade Games of 1993. Okay, as I've already told in story time in rather... Uh, deep detail, this was the year that I decided to move and move to Florida. Um, I had already set all of the wheels in motion in, I want to say, the fall of 1992, going into the winter, and then uh, two weeks before I was to get on a plane and fly down there, my grandfather passed away. Um, that was a real difficult time for the family, but after all that was done... I stuck to my guns to the, uh, shall I say, disappointment of some people in my family, and I went down to Florida to start my life anew. Uh, let's see. Um, it took me a while to get every to get things uh, established. As a matter of fact, it took me almost ten months to do so. Uh, over the next nine plus months, uh, I moved like nine times, or yeah, nine times in you know nine months, and you know getting into living situations, and all of a sudden they fall through and things like that. Um, and then I met my friend and uh, former roommate in an arcade in uh, Melbourne, like I said in story time. Um, I move up to Orlando later on that year, and my roommate and I start going on arcade runs and everything goes from there. Um, I rediscovered my love for arcades back then and, you know, it just kept going and going until arcades started closing in Orlando in the middle to late 90s, which was an unfortunate time. Uh, so yeah, uh, once again, these are the games that I thought were the best ones in 1993. Um, and, you know, no particular order, and so forth and so on. And, of course, there are some honorable mentions, so let's get to it. Uh, Dungeons & Dragons Tower of Doom. Now, this was released in 1994, but it was created in 1993. Um, I will give this a full... I uh, will give this the, the treatment, the Are You Experience treatment, in the next segment for this game. But let's just suffice it to say this was a wonderful game that fed two of the things that I were I was into most, or two of the three things I was into most. Let's let's be honest about that. Um, okay, Knuckle Bash. This was a an interesting beat 'em up uh, by Toa Plan. I only played it a few times, but it was kind of fun. 
although there's uh, one that I'll talk about later on in the game that was actually more fun. But this one was okay. It was sort of just like a straight takeoff of um, a Final Fight, but it also had elements like the uh, Test Your Might uh, challenging stage in between stages, which was an interesting thing. You know, it was a pretty decent uh, beat-em-up, but, you know, there were better ones. But this one was actually kind of decent, just there were better ones. Um, Mortal Kombat 2. I mean, like I said with its originator, what can I say about it? Now you have more characters to play, you have um, gr gr more gruesome fatalities, and, you know, it's just more of what made Mortal Kombat great. And, you know, now the, act the actual gameplay's faster, the characters are a little bit better balanced, and, you know, the gameplay's fun. I mean, I wasn't huge into it, but every once in a while I'd play MK2, you know, just for a change of pace. But, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a Street Fighter guy, and you'll hear that later on in this segment. Okay, uh, NBA Jam. This was another hit for Bally Midway. Um, this was a massive hit. They got the license from the NBA, and so now, with the exception of, oh, I think the only player, the only player at the time you could, there was not in the game was Michael Jordan, because, of course, being the ultimate superstar of the league, then, you know, he had separate licensing deals, uh, uh, separate from the NBA, so, you know, a lot of games wanted to get him in their games, but they couldn't because it was way expensive. <laughs> you know, Michael did not sell his uh, name or likeness cheaply. So, yeah, um, NBA Jam is just a wonderful game. I talked about its predecessor several episodes ago, um, Arch Rivals. You could see the DNA for NBA Jam in Arch Rivals, but yeah, I love NBA Jam. It's one of my favorites. You know, one of my favorite basketball games, for sure. Uh, the Punisher. This is a beat-em-up by Capcom, um, where basically you are either the Punisher or Nick Fury, and you're trying to take down the Kingpin, if I'm not mistaken. And it's not a bad uh, beat-em-up, but yeah, it, it's... I just had all kinds of difficulties with this game, because it was horrifically cheap at times. I mean, I, you know, I have no problem saying that. And, you know, it's just one of those games that, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you could shoot guns, you could beat people up. You know, there were different, uh, just different things you could do with the game. I haven't played it in a while. The arcade in Brighton used to have it, but I think they rotated it off the floor. I played it a few times when I went there. But, yeah, I mean, it wasn't bad. I think they, Capcom uh, had better beat-em-ups in, like, uh, 1994, and we'll get there eventually. Okay, so that was uh, The Punisher. Uh, let's see. Um, Raiden 2. Okay, this is the sequel, of course, to Raiden, which is a, to me, a wonderful and great uh vertical scrolling Japanese shooter made by Seibu Kaihatsu and you know it takes what made Raiden great and made it better uh, it was more interactive um, there was just a lot more 
to the game, the details uh, were uh, more pronounced, and I loved this game. I mean, I played it just um, as I was going through games uh, for 1993, and you know, I re and I remembered this game, and you know, I had it on my uh, PlayStation One. Um, I forget what it's called. I think it's called the Raiden Project, where I think it's like Raiden One and Two uh, on one uh, disc. And I would play Raiden and also Raiden 2. I think I liked Raiden 2 better, actually. There's just more to it. It was a lot. It was a lot better game. Raiden was great, but Raiden 2 was so much better. Ridge Racer. <laughs> when I was going through the games on my emulator, and this one came up, I was like, "How can I forget this one?" Um, I played this game in several places in uh, Orlando. Uh, most of the arcade, I think like three arcades in Orlando, I want to say three, had Ridge Racer in it, and it was, it's a wonderful game, even though it just kind of, they could have done a little more, a little better for it to be, uh, uh, to give it more continuity in it, because all you do is run one race, and, you know, you have your options of your, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the track you want to run, and if you want a uh, manual transmission or not. I mean, it was, it was a pretty good game, but I believe the PlayStation 1 version of Ridge Racer was so much more, because now, I, if I'm not mistaken, that game, you actually were able to acquire, uh, different cars, which had different characteristics, and it was just a so much, much, better game on the PlayStation 1 than it was in the arcade, but I give Ridge Racer its due. It was a, it was a good game. Run and Gun. Okay, this is uh, another game in uh, the series of games by Konami. Um, when I found out that Konami made this, I was surprised and not surprised all at the same time. Uh, with this game, you again are in charge of a basketball team and you are trying to win the uh, basketball game. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think it goes along the same lines of double dribble in the fact that you have to pay for uh, quarters. So I think to play a whole game would cost you one or two dollars. Um, it was a it was a good enough game. I think it got a little cheesy, you know, with. Uh, the AI and everything like that and just how they would just automatically steal the ball if they got anywhere near you and they'd run down court and, you know, throw down a, a vicious dunk on the other end and so forth. I mean, it was not too bad of a game in and of itself, but yeah, it wasn't quite what I was hoping for, especially considering Konami made it. Okay, uh, Saturday Night Slam Masters. This game was made by Capcom. This one is um, sort of a combination of Final Fight meets professional wrestling. Um, I liked it okay, but it was one of those things where it was just more of a beat-em-up than it was a wrestling game. It just seemed to be a beat-em-up uh, dressed as a wrestling game. 
and you know it was okay for what it was but yeah I, it just didn't interest me as much because i tried playing it like i would play uh, a wrestling game like uh let's say um mat mania and yeah it was more about combos and you know doing you know special moves instead of it being more like just wearing your opponent down enough so you can pin him and win the match you know it was okay for what it was but yeah it just wasn't my cup of tea and finally, Super Street Fighter 2. Uh, when this came out, my roommate and I were all over it. You know, we were kind of looking for a new challenge at this point because we both could beat um, the Super, the Street Fighter game of our choice, which was Special Champion Edition for the Sega Genesis. We could beat that game on 8-star difficulty, and we were basically challenging each other for perfects. So when this came out in the arcade, we were all over it. We were on the constant hunt to find it, and when we found it, we would play it and play it and play it and play it. Um, the characters are better balanced. They have some different attacks, which actually are better for uh, creating combos. Now the game counts combos and gives you a uh, point bonus for... Uh, the number of hits in a combo. I mean, I've seen as many as, like, what, seven hits in a combo, and the bonus score is kind of ridiculous. Um, also, there are four new um, characters in the game. That is T-Hawk, Long, Cammy, and DJ. And each one of them, they're different, and they are... I remember when uh, my roommate and I were figuring this game out, uh, we were having trouble with all of these. Um, at the time, my roommate was also friends with the uh, two men who would be instrumental in creating um, Super Street Fighter 2. And their names are James Goddard and Alex Jimenez. Um, apparently, uh, my roommate w knew them and was good friends with both of them. Uh, before they uh, wor started working at Capcom, and apparently they told her some stuff about uh, the character designs and so forth. And <laughs> it was kind of funny because up until um, my roommate really knew how to beat one of the characters, the DJ, who could be horrifically cheap with his moves and you know seriously crush your groove when you're in the middle of playing a, you know a good game of super street fighter and i remember my roommate saying she wanted to you know give him a hug and then punch him in the face or something like that it was something silly that made me laugh because yeah um you know each of these characters you have to kind of figure out how to beat them and it takes a little while but when you do and when you know how to beat them, yeah, you can go through it pretty quick. Um, yeah, so when Super Street Fighter 2 hit, yeah, we were all over it. And then when the tournament edition of Super Street Fighter 2 came out, uh, the Fashion Square Mall Arcade had it, and we would be playing that constantly, and we would more or less, I'd say, I think I said something about it before when I was talking about Fashion Square, um seven times out of ten we would be crushing that game 
because we were really good at playing our respective characters. She was playing Blanca, I was playing Sagat, and we knew how to beat most players who weren't uh, trying to do cheap tactics and all that other stuff. And, you know, those players, we would lose to them because, of course, their tactics are extremely cheap, although I learned how to, as my roommate would say, be Captain Comeback. <laughs> and like have like very little health get left but I would figure out a way to beat somebody especially if they were using cheesy tactics so yeah I mean I think more than any other game I think that's the game my roommate and I bonded over Super Street Fighter 2 you know that's always going to have a special place in my heart and you know it's one of my favorite fighting games I think if I had to rank the Street Fighters, my personal favorite, of course, is Champion Edition, but Super Street Fighter 2 is, like, right behind it. Okay, honorable mentions. Samurai Aces. <laughs> this is an interesting shooter that has uh, modern aircraft, but it also has uh, Japanese mysticism and lore, like, woven in through the game. I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's funny in a way, but yeah, I mean, you have um, these unusual characters. I think my favorite one is the wolf, because he's flying, I think it's like an F... What was that experimental aircraft? It was an oh, YF-19, I think. And, of course, as you're powering up your weapons, you know, you're, instead of just shooting your guns, you're also throwing uh, you know, shurikens and other objects and the aircraft and the ships you're up against have, you know, like I said, this mystic bent to them, so it's a lot of fun to play. It really is. Uh, Power Instinct. This is a fighting game a la Street Fighter 2, although it has a lot of humor and absurdity to the game. Um, I mention it here because it's not a bad game per se, but it's really, really silly. Um, I think I played it a couple of times in Florida, but um, I was going through my, emulate, my emulator, and I looked at this game, and I'm like, oh, I remember this game, you know, as I was want to do doing this search. So, yeah. Um, like I said, it's really, really silly, but it's not a bad game. And lastly, Virtua Fighter. This one kind of revolutionized the fighting game because it was more of the it was more precision based than combo based and all all the fighters were constructed of polygons uh, Sega really hit it out of the park with this game and the game would only get better through its various iterations um, I'm trying to think I think this franchise went up to like Virtua Fighter 5, I think. Uh, without looking it up on Wikipedia, I think they went up to 5. So, I mean, this game was very different than Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat was. This was more of a pure fighting game, for sure. And it required a different way of doing things, but it was a lot of fun. So, yeah, those are all of my uh, top 10s with honorable mentions. Um, if you have a game that you think was good, that was uh, uh, made and re made in 1993, 
and you and it's not on this list, hey, let me know. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. And now, with all of that done, let's just move right on into Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying wet arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not gonna buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Dungeons and Dragons Tower of Doom. <laughs> oh, this game. I tell you what, when this game when I saw this game, I was all about it. As you guys know, my two of my biggest uh, obsessions slash interests are uh, Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games in general, and of course, arcade games. This was the perfect marriage of the two. Um, okay, reading from Wikipedia. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons Tower of Doom, published in 1994, is the first of two arcade games created by Capcom based on the Dungeons and Dragons tabletop role-playing game and set into the Mastara campaign setting. Oh, uh, a little aside there, that's my favorite campaign setting too, so I mean, this was, this was hitting all the buttons for sure. Um, it is a side-scrolling beat-em-up with some role-playing video game elements for one to four players. The game was also released on the Sega Saturn, packed with its sequel, Dungeons & Dragons Shadow Over Mistara, which we will talk about, uh, under the title Dungeons & Dragons Collection, although the Saturn version limited the gameplay to only two players. In 2013, both games were re-released for modern platforms as Dungeons & Dragons Chronicles of Mistara. And I have that for my... And I have that for my um, uh, Xbox 360, and it's fantastic. I love it. Absolutely love it. Okay, uh, Tower of Doom is a side-scrolling arcade game featuring four different characters. The Cleric, the Dwarf, the Elf, and the Fighter. Uh, fighting iconic Dungeons & Dragons monsters. Bosses include a troll that regenerates unless burned, a large black dragon, and the dreaded Shadow Elf. That's Mistar's equivalent of a drow. Uh, a Beholder. The optional super boss Flame Wing, which is a Great Worm Red Dragon, and the final boss Deimos, which who is an Archlich. Uh, at points in the game, the players are presented with a choice of paths to take to continue progress. Each path goes to a different area, and it is impossible to visit every area in a single play, which is good because now you needed to. This gave you uh, more. Uh, replayability. Not only did you have multiple characters which you could play the game and beat the game in, now you had multiple paths through the game. So the replayability of this game is off the charts. Uh, the gameplay is more technical than the average uh, beat-em-up game. Um, in addition to the usual basic attacks and jumping, it includes blocking, strong attacks, turning attacks, dashing attacks, crouching, and evading. It also requires the use of careful tactics, as most enemies have the same abilities as the heroes and can outrange them too. Daggers, hammers, arrows, and burning oils can be used as throwing weapons, and many en enemies have similar weapons. Spells can be used by means of magical rings or by the two-playable two spellcasters, the cleric and the elf. 
Uh, the fighter is a balanced character with great range and power and has the highest amount of health. The elf, ha the elf has a short range with her sword and packs noticeably less power than the fighter, but has seven arcane spells at her disposal. Magic Missile, Invisibility, Fireball, Lightning Bolt, Polymorph Others, Ice Storm, and Cloud Kill. The Cleric has fighting skills comparable to those of the Elf. He can turn undead and uses five divine spells. Hold Person, Striking, Continual Light, Sticks to Snakes, and Cure Serious Wounds. Uh, he is most adept at using a shield, being able to block many vertical attacks that other characters cannot. And the Dwarf has a short horizontal range, but has the best vertical reach, and he is the most powerful character in close combat thanks to his quick combo speed. Uh, let's see. Uh, the plot is uh, the Republic of Derekin and Mistara is under a terrible siege as the number of monsters and their attacks rise. A group of four adventurers step forth to rescue various areas that are sent by the merchant Lord Corwin Linton to investigate the attacks, revealed to be masterminded by the Archlich Deimos. Eventually, the adventurers make their way to Deimos's Tower of Doom and ultimately destroy him. That's the plot. Uh, let's see. Uh, the development of the game. At the beginning of the 1990s, Capcom acquired the license to create D&D games. As part of the deal, they ported Eye of the Beholder to the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. The Japanese branch of Capcom were having difficulty getting TSR's approval for creating a D&D game, so they turned to Capcom USA to negotiate. Uh, Capcom and license holder TSR met in January of 1992 to discuss the, how the game should be approached. They decided to write the game story first and build the game around the story, which was a very good idea. You know, this the story in this game is really is is almost as uh, immersive as the gameplay itself. Um, to continue, most of the staff at Capcom USA were not familiar with D&D rules and lore, so assistant James Goddard, one of my roommate's friends, turned to D&D enthusiast Alex Jimenez, another one of my roommate's friends, uh, to come up with a concept and make it understandable to a Japanese audience, all the while testing the product. Some of Jimenez's uh, inspirations for the beat-em-up style came from Golden Axe, while multiple paths were based on Thayer's quest. There was debate between Capcom and SSI on whether to make the game Asian-themed or Western-themed, which Jimenez himself managed to resolve. Jimenez supplied concept art for the characters. One of his biggest difficulties was trying to help the Japanese developers grasp the D&D elements. <laughs> All he had to do was have them watch Record of Lodos War, honestly. Um, to continue, originally the game was supposed to have two buttons in the arcade controls, but two more were needed to accommodate the inventory system. Smart move. Uh, once the initial game design was complete, Jimenez translated it into an actual Dungeons & Dragons scenario and had his gamers group in San Jose play it with himself as Game Master. Capcom of Japan then revised the scenario design based on the player's reactions. This is how you design a D&D game, right here. <laughs> there it is, that's the formula, right there. Uh, let's see... Uh, let's see... In Japan, Game Machine listed Dungeons & Dragons Tower of Doom on their 
March 1st, 1994 issue as being the second most successful table arcade unit of the year, outperforming titles like Raiden 2 and Fatal Fury Special. The game received rave review from GamePro, who commented, The action is not as fast as it could be, but it's furious, smoothly controlled, and intuitive. They also praised the game's length, complexity, and nonlinear nature, and its faithful recreation of Dungeons & Dragons elements. According to GameSpy's Alan Rausch, Dungeons & Dragons Tower of Doom was, quote, equally good, though not as well-remembered, unquote, as other, quote, final fight-style beat-em-ups at the arcade like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Simpsons. Rauch felt the combat was fun, had more depth than you might expect from such a simple game, and K loaded it with secrets to find and treasures to swipe, and that after players beat the game seven levels, they found out that the game's ultimate bad guy was just the pawn of an even bigger bad guy, who, naturally, would have to wait for the sequel to show up. That, of course, is D&D Shadow Over Mistara, which we will cover soon. Uh, let's see. Uh, my experiences with this game. <laughs> Okay, I cannot for the life of me remember which arcade in Orlando first got this game, but considering it was the perfect marriage between my two lifelong loves, arcade games, and the Dungeons & Dragons RPG, I almost don't care. <laughs> I was down for it the first moment that I heard Capcom was putting this game out, as I was loyal to Capcom because of their previous games like Street Fighter 2, Knights of the Round, and games like that, so I was confident they could pull off creating the right world and attitude this game, and I was not disappointed. <laughs> I so was not disappointed. This game is like a mini-campaign from the moment you press start. They got the atmosphere so correct in this game down to people saying in reviews of the game that they were fighting over the gold pieces that the monsters dropped when killed. <laughs> when I read that, I'm like, yeah, they got this perfectly right. Uh, the spell effects were awesome, even the little touches, like having to light a troll's body on fire to kill it after reducing it to zero hit points to keep it from regenerating, just made the game... Uh, the arcade game player in the dungeon, the D&D Dungeon Master and me very, very happy. I bought in its sequel off of Xbox Live, and it's called Chronicles of Mistara. You can play live up to three other people, and it's even more fun than the arcade game. This game is certainly one of my all-time favorites, for, without a doubt. Um, and that's uh, our experience for D&D Shadow, or excuse me, Tower of Doom. We'll cover Shadow of Mistara, I think, in episode 30. So, you won't have long to wait for my feelings on that one, that's for sure. Okay, um, like, you know, so if you have your experiences with this game, by all means, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. So, from there, let's see where we're going to go next. We are going to do an arcade review. Replay Castleberry, Florida. Okay, uh, quick overview. Uh, like I said before, uh, all my arcade reviews are based off of five criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, and value. 
Uh, each rating is 1 to 10, with half points coming into play. Um, location is self-explanatory. Where is it? Is it easy to get to? Is there plenty of parking? That kind of thing. Uh, selection, do they have a lot of games, or do they have a few? Uh, is the cross-section good, or do they tend to stay in one particular genre or one particular era? Um, I can give high marks for an arcade that doesn't have a lot of games, but they have a really good cross-section which represents most of the eras in video gaming. Likewise, you know, I mean, so far the highest rating I've given is a 9. Um, I'm probably going to end up giving, you know, giving some places a 10, you know, as I visit them, you know, galloping ghost, I'm looking right at you. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, ambiance. Uh, is there music playing? Are there other things around art, back glasses, you know, things like that to draw the eye and to uh, enhance the arcade experience? Things like that. Is the staff... Um, is the staff helpful and friendly? Do they not care? Are they just there collecting a paycheck and they just don't give a crap? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, functionality. Uh, how do the games look? Do they work? Do they work well? Um, if a game goes down, how long before it gets fixed? Things like that. And of course, value. Um, do they run on quarters? Do they still use tokens? Do they run the, fleet, the free play option? Um, and of course, you know, depending on you know what they do and how they do it that's how I determine value so you would and like I said all of these ratings go from 1 to 10 with half points coming into play add them all up divided by 5 and there's your final score so let's get right to it uh, let's see location for Rockies replay I give that a 6.5 uh, this place was on State Road 436 in Castleberry, and it was easy enough to get to uh, either by car or public transit, but the parking lot was small, and it wasn't easy to get into. Yeah, that's true. There was, like, one way you could get into that parking lot, and if you were coming, from, coming south, heading north up 436, you had to pull a U-turn somewhere and come back down to southbound to get into the parking lot because it ha it was at a weird angle from what I remember. And yeah, it was small because the building that Rocky's Replay was in was rather small. I think pretty much smaller than uh, the arcade in Brighton. Um, okay, selection. I give that a 7. Um, I remember Rockies almost always had the latest games and the selection was decent, but if I had a nit to pick, they didn't have a wide enough cross-section of games because they tended to focus on newer games. Um, I would have given them a higher rating here if they had, although they did have some of the classics, just not very many. They focused more towards uh, games of the day, you know, and we're talking, what, 1995, 96, 97, and 98, I think, even going into 99, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, yeah, I would have given them a higher uh, rating here if they had a better cross-section. Uh, let's see, ambiance, 6.5. Uh, there were a couple of TVs around, so if you just wanted to sit at the bar and watch sports, you could do that. But the only thing for you to look at was the menu behind the bar. Uh, there wasn't a lot of art or you know anything else to draw the eye. Uh, it was a pure arcade with a uh, bar which actually served food and alcohol. 
Um, this, of course, when this game with this arcade was in its uh, heyday, it was just before the you know the indoor smoking ban, so you had people smoking cigarettes all over the place, <laughs> you know. Um, the staff was decent enough, you know, they were helpful, um, but yeah, it wasn't like, you know, they would jump, you know, fall over themselves to help you out if you had a problem. Uh, let's see, functionality, I give it a six. Um, the games work well for the most part, but I do remember several games having issues with controls, and those issues remained every time I went there, and that's unfortunate. Um... Their games didn't break down a lot, but yeah, when they did break down, they it took a little while for them to get fixed. And that's just how it is. You know, that's how it was. I wasn't... It didn't make me very happy because a couple of the games that broke down were games that I really was into, like Street Fighter Alpha 3 at the time, and so forth and so on. Uh, value, 6.5. Uh, if I remember right, Rockies ran on quarters, which would give it an average score, but the rating gets elevated because the arcade had a definite adult-oriented uh, bent to it. Um, they had an 18-year-old uh, or older. Uh, you could only access if you were 18 or older after 7 p.m. Uh, the bar, like I said, ser served alcohol and actually served food and ice cream. So, you know, you actually got a little bit more for your money if that's what you were into. It just wasn't about the games. There were a couple other things that added to the value, so it gets a 6.5 there. Um, you add all that together, average out by 5, and you get a 6.5 score above average. Um... The Saga of Rockies was a bit of a sad one in that they were forced to shut down uh, because the Florida Department of Transportation decided to do a major rebuild of State Road 436 in that area, and that forced out uh, several homes and businesses. Uh, the place moved around several times before shutting down for good, I think in, what, 2002 or something like that? Um... It was a good place to play games and have a drink or two if you were so inclined, and it was a nice place to go when a lot of the arcades in the Orlando area were shutting down. Um, yeah, I liked the uh, I liked the you know the ambience of the place. It was fun, but yeah, you know it had its it had its issues even before it got shut down and moved around and so forth. But yeah, I I like this place. I miss it. You know, you know, little places like this, you know, that's, those are the arcades that are, you know, just as important as the ones in malls and the ones like in, you know, like on Disney property and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, that's Rocky's Replay and that's my review of it. Um, if you lived in Orlando during this time, you used to go to Rocky's, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Tell me what you know, because I want to know. Um, I want to know if what I said and like I said, 99% of this stuff is off of memory, so my memory can be faulty. So if something is, something's not right or something's incorrect, just let me know. Okay, and now we are moving on to a new segment to this podcast. Um, so I'll give it a little bit of an explanation. And <laughs> quite honestly, I have to make a bumper for it as well. So let's see, it is called the Silver Ball, so let's play it.
the silver ball, Matahari. Okay, this was one of the first digital pinball machines I remember playing. Um, I know there are a couple more that came out before Matahari, but this is the one that sticks in sticks in my memory the most. Um, uh, Trumbull Mall got it, and you know we'll get into it once we get through a little bit of uh, information. Thanks once again to Wikipedia. So here we go. Okay, Matahari is a pinball machine created by Bally Manufacturing in 1977 and released in 1978. The theme of this game is based on the Dutch exotic dancer Matahari. It was mainly produced using solid-state electronics, but also 170 electromechanical versions were released. It was the last model manufactured by Bally in two such versions. Well, that's interesting. Uh, approximately 20 sample games were produced with a plastic playfield instead of the traditional wooden playfield. That's also interesting. Um, the design noticeably consists of mainly dark red and gold color artwork and a prominent image of a dagger running up the middle. The dagger is also depicted on the back glass in the hand of Matahari. One version is blank and one shows the inscription of the model of the Nazi German SS uh, and I'm very bad at German, so I'm not going to try and say it, but it basically comes down to, uh, it basically translates to, my honor is my loyalty. Uh, Matahari died during World War One, therefore the inscription is an anachronism. Contrary to popular belief, the version with the inscription is not more rare than the one without. There were about equal numbers of both versions of back glasses made. Uh, the game has chimes as it was designed before electronic sounds were used. The table, table features two flippers, four pop bumpers, two slingshots, two four bank drop targets, and one kickout hole. The machine makes use of an MPU 2518-17 circuit and an AS 2518-18 circuit, or power supply, excuse me. Uh, the game allows up to four players. A table has a completely symmetric playout lay, uh, playfield layout. The machine has a simple, straightforward rule set that offers a challenge to beginners and advanced players. Basically, there are three goals to accomplish. Knock down the drop targets, complete the A-B combinations a certain number of times, and land in the kickout hole multiple times. The rules in detail are as following. Making A and B top rollover lanes or left and right A-B orbits scores and advances A-B lit value, which is displayed in the center of the playfield. Landing the ball in the top kickout hole first time scores uh, 3,000 points, advances bonus value three places, lights two times bonus multiplier, and lights left out lane for 50,000 points. Uh, second time lights right out lane for 50,000 points and a 3x multiplier. Third time lights 5x bonus multiplier. Knocking down all drop targets scores 50,000 points and targets special light. Uh, a replay is available by making A and B when lit for special, and another uh, 50k for all target down when lit for special. The maximum is one extra ball per ball in play. So yeah, that's a uh, that that's how to, that's basically the gameplay to that. Uh, but like I said, yeah, I remember when Trumbull Maw got this machine. I think I'm. I'm guessing here because this, of course, is 1978. That's 42 years ago now, and I was basically a nine-year-old kid when this came out. Um, 
uh, let's see, I think Trumbull Maw got this one in 1979. I think that's when they got it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a fun machine to play. I loved playing this game. The artwork was fantastic. Uh, the gameplay, like the description said, it was simple, you know, but it still was challenging to do that. I mean, I have it in emulation. Um, uh, what, uh, Future Pinball is the emulator I use, and I actually found this, uh, you know, found it online and downloaded it, and I was able to play it, and, you know, it brought back a lot of memories. This was one of the first, uh, pinball machines I saw with a digital score readout, and that would only increase as, uh, the 70s came to a close and the 80s started. Um... I don't remember when, I could probably find out, but using um, LiquidQuest LCD uh, scoring was something that really started taking off right in the late 70s, probably with the advent of uh, the Space Invaders machine, which we will cover in this segment. So yeah, that's Matahari. I mean, I love playing it. It's a fun game to play. Uh, in emulation, once of course you get everything set correctly so the game actually plays decent. But yeah, I, I love it. It's one of my favorite pinball machines of all time. I'd love to find a place that had that has it. Um, I bet uh, Galloping Ghost uh, Pinball Arcade has it. You know, because quasi there aren't very many pinball machines they don't have. <laughs> That's for sure. So yeah, um... That's my first uh, segment for the Silver Ball. Um, as we get through machines in the 70s and 80s and so on and so forth, I'll have more memories. Remember, I played this game when I was like 9 or 10 years old. So, yeah, I remember it. I remember it well, but yeah. Um, <laughs> my memories of being a 10-year-old kid are a, just a little bit, little bit uh, iffy. So, yeah, um... If you have any suggestions, uh, a pinball machine that you want me to cover, uh, just understand that this is cla these are going to be classic pinball machines. I'm going to stop at a certain point. I'm not going to the modern ones because I can barely play the modern uh, machines, like by Stern, you know, and things like that. And you know, there are machines in like the 90s that really frustrated me and I'll probably get to them. But yeah, get a hold of me. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, and that's episode 29 in a nutshell. So yeah, let me give you a little bit of a taste of what's to come in episode 30. Uh, let's see. Oh, that's right. We have a top 10 for my favorite 26 Atari 2600 games. Of course, like I said, we're going to cover uh, Shadow Over Mistara. Uh, and we are going to do home systems for probably one of my favorite, uh, uh, one of my all-time favorite uh, home video game systems. So stay tuned. I'll try and get this out quickly, and I'll get right to episode 30 soon. So this is Brian saying, have fun out there, good gaming, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com 
or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict Podcast. See you then.